many applications, Lord, and we are many people, Lord, and so we look to you to teach us today. These are spiritual words, Lord, and they must be spiritually discerned. So, Father God, move among us today, Lord, and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock, our redeemer, Lord, we love you so much. Thank you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Seems like it's been a long time since I've been here. Um, I want to thank you guys for your uh, prayers and your support uh, for our family as uh, as we mourn the loss of my mother-in-law, she's gone home to be with Jesus. We don't mourn for her, we mourn for ourselves because she was such a special woman. And so I just wanna thank you all. Uh, those of you who knew, knew her, uh, she was a regular fixture at Wednesday night service and uh, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Um, also, we wanna just remember Ella today, Ella will be leaving on Wednesday to go back to, I'm sorry for calling you out, embarrassing you, Ella, but. Uh, Ella's going back to the Philist, not the Philistines, the Philippines for, for 20, 22 days? What did, I, I already forgot. 20-something 20, 20 days. <laughs> and while she's there, besides visiting and seeing family, that she also has a mission trip that she will be involved in. And so uh, please get your hugs with, with Ella today because it'll be a, a little while before we see her again. And please be praying that the Lord would use her and the mission team as they go. You can find out more from Ella. Um, we're gonna conclude the service after the end of the, the worship, the final closing song. We're gonna have Allison come up and we wanna pray hands and uh, pray and lay, lay hands on her and anoint her with oil for her upcoming surgery. So I just wanna let you know that. Now, all that stuff out of the way, let's dive into the book. The book of Ruth. Ruth is the Hebrew title of the book. Ruth's name means companion, friendship, association. It has one of those words that, that mean, mean all of those. I loved this introduction to the book from Bruce Wilkinson's Talk Through the Bible. He, he led a seminar for many years called Walk Through the Bible where he would go around and he would give you uh, uh, 66 snapshots of each of the books of the Bible. Um, it's a great little um, book. I recommend it to you because it's basically in book form, the seminar. But he had this to say, and I think it sums it up really well. Ruth is a cameo story of love, devotion, and redemption set in the black context of the days of the judges. It's the story of a Moabite woman who forsakes her pagan heritage in order to cling to the people of Israel and to the God of Israel. Because of her faithfulness in a time of national faithlessness, God rewards her by giving her a new husband, Boaz, and a son, Obed, and a privileged position in the lineage of David and Christ. She is the great-grandmother of David. What a, I think that sums it up really well. The events in Ruth take place during the days of the Judges. But what a difference between these two books. If you've read through the book of Judges, um, you, you see so much violence, you see much, so much lawlessness. 
In fact, it says, and we'll repeat this again, that the end, you know, many times in that book that Israel had no king and each person, each man did what they wanted to do. What they saw was right in their own eyes. But instead of violence and lawlessness, we see in this book, tenderness, love, and sacrifice. You know, it is good for us to remember as we are in a world that is getting increasingly darker, that is becoming increasingly more violent, that there are still those who seek to do good, those who seek to do good in evil days, and that God is still at work, even though violence may fill the news. Ruth and Esther are the only books in the Bible named for women. Esther was a Hebrew woman who married a Gentile king. God used Esther in a strategic time in history of Israel to help preserve the nation from destruction. Ruth was a Gentile who married a Hebrew man. And God used Ruth to perpetuate the line of Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll find her name written in the genealogy in the book of Luke. Ruth is placed between Judges and Samuel for a definite reason, because Judges shows the decline of the Jewish nation. You had, you had the exodus as they came out, and the, then the years of the wandering in the wilderness, and then Joshua leading the conquest of the land. And then it says, after Joshua died and all those of his generation died, then decline hit. Samuel, on the other side, shows the setting up of the Jewish kingdom, where David would come become king, and then there would be this revival in the things of God. And Ruth, being in the middle, is a picture of Christ and his bride. What a fitting thing. Warren Wiersbe said this, during this present age, when Israel is set aside, Christ is calling out his bride from among the Gentiles and the Jews. We're gonna see soon that the Gentiles will be, the times of the Gentile will be completed and God will once again focus solely on the Jewish nation. But we're in that time, the church age still, and God is calling out a people to himself from both Jews and Gentiles. In the Hebrew Bible, Ruth is one of five books that make up the Megaloth, or scrolls. And these are read in the synagogue on five holy occasions during the year. Song of Solomon is read on the feast of the Passover. Lamentations is read with, on the ninth of the month of Av, mourning for the fall of Jerusalem. Ecclesiastes, is read on the Feast of Tabernacles, Esther on the Feast of Lots or Purim, and Ruth on the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, which I find very interesting. The Feast, the feast of Pentecost, also called the Feast of Harvest, we see in Exodus 23:16 that it commemorates the first fruits of your labors which you have sown in the field. During that, during that feast, it's the only time where where the Jews are instructed to make their loaves with unleavened bread and leavened bread. And it was a mixed loaf. What a picture of the church age beginning. That was our birthday, is the Feast of Pentecost. 
Ruth's betrothal took place during this festive harvest season when barley was being winnowed. Now, we don't know 100%. We can't be dogmatic about who the author is. Jewish tradition attributes the book to Samuel, and I don't see any reason to dispute that. And if so, it would have been written during the time or near the time when David was anointed king of Israel, most likely written during the monarchy. Chapter 4, verses 7, when we get to chapter 4, we'll see that there is a custom the exchanging of a sandal that had ceased practice at the time of the writing of this book that had to be explained. And so we know it was after the time of the judges, after this, the, this time, and so it fits nicely in that. The historical setting, the account begins in the closing days of judges, in the days when judges ruled. Judge, that was roughly a 370 year period, as I said, the victories of Joshua had been followed by periods of spiritual decline. Judges chapter 2, verse 10 says, When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers, which despoiled them and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers. By following other gods to serve them and bow down to them, they did not cease from their own doings, nor from their stubborn way. So throughout the time of Judges, there's this secular pattern. They sinned by breaking God's law and worshiping the gods of the Canaanite. God brings judgment. God brings suffering by sending an enemy to attack them, to cause them to be in bondage to a foreign king, and then it gets so bad that the Israelites cry out to God repenting of their wrongdoing, and God sends a deliverer, a judge, who would subdue their enemy. There would be peace for a time, rest for a time, and yet the people would fall back into sin and rebellion and the cycle would be repeated. Before I was born again, I lived a religious life in a denominational church. I did not know Jesus. This was my life. I knew enough of about God and about his holiness and his righteousness, but I had no power. I had no, no power in my life to be able to say no to the things of the flesh and the, 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 the corruption in the world and to say yes to the things of God. And so I would follow this type of pattern as well. I would, I would go and I would, I would I'm, I'm going to do better this time. I'm going to do, you know, and yet then the temptation would come. 
usually my friends, the people I was hanging out with, and pretty soon I'm back there with them wallowing in that until the conviction coming to church because I was going to regularly to church and I would feel that, that regret, that remorse. And I would cry out to God, help me God, help me. And then I would leave with that sense, I'm gonna do better this time and I'd fall into this sickle or pattern. May that not be you. If that's you today, there is a way out. And that comes by receiving Jesus, by allowing his Holy Spirit to indwell you, to give you that ability to say yes to the things of God, to say no to the things of flesh through the power of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet when we do stumble, because we all fall short, we also have an advocate that we can go to. So no longer do we have to have that, that condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so I would encourage you along that path, seek the Lord if you're here today. The book of Judges closes with that declaration as I mentioned before, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So against the background of this national irresponsibility and the weak character, Ruth and Boaz shine as bright examples of purity and light and goodness. The story of Ruth illustrates the truth that God has never left himself absolutely without a witness. G. Campbell Morgan says, throughout all the period of degeneracy, there has been loyal and beautiful souls children of faith living in the midst of the conflict and strife. The life of loyalty to God, simple, trustful, and triumphant. In the darkest days, the light has never been totally extinguished. And you and I are called to such a calling as this, to live in a day when it is getting dark, to shine in the light, to keep our focus on Jesus, that we might be able to be those those beautiful souls that are loyal to the Lord, living in the midst of conflict. Quickly, we'll, we'll get through this. The narrative style, there's a strong emphasis on dialogue. This is a different book than I've ever taught before because there's only 85 verses in the whole book, but over 50 are taken up with conversation and dialogue. So much of the events in the story are told through these conversations. The book seems to be written from Naomi's perspective as well. Every event relates back to her, her husband's and her son's death, her daughter's-in-law, her return to Bethlehem, her God, her relative Boaz, her land to sell and her progeny. Almost without peer in scripture, the story views God through the eyes of a woman. So uh, I am not a woman, obviously, um, and so you'll probably, you ladies will probably be able to relate better to this book than I will. Um, but I want to tell you, I have been so blessed preparing the study. Besides showing King David's right to the throne of Israel, God's providence, his protective care is clearly shown. The Lord is faithful in his loving 
superintending and providentially caring for his people. And as his people, we should always be about his business in the ordinary activities of, of our daily life. We should be about the, the work of the Father's business. Because we're recipients of his grace, like Ruth and Boaz, we should respond in faithful obedience to him and in gracious acts towards other people. Clearly, this message for us is needed today as it's a clear call to responsible Christian living. Boaz himself, we'll get to him, uh, but he's an illustrator, illustration of the greater one to come. The one who came from his family, the Lord Jesus Christ. Boaz acts as the goel the kinsman redeemer to redeem Ruth. We'll, we'll unpack all that when we get to it, but just in the same way that Christ acted in grace by giving himself as our redeemer to provide redemption for us. It's difficult to believe that the events in this book took place during the time of the judges, a time when Israel was divided and a defeated nation, but during the worst times, God reveals his love and still works on behalf of those who fear and trust him. We live today at a time when there is no king. Everyone's doing what they seem want to do. The book of Ruth is a love story and a harvest story as the Lord of harvest is gathering in his sheaths. And that's what God is doing in our world today. Praise God that we have men and women that want to go out to saturate and others. Don't limit yourself to that, though. Be ready. Finally, the book consists of four chapters. This was my original reason for choosing. Pastor Bob said, hey, I'm going to take a sabbatical. Can you fill in for four weeks? Sure. And I'm like, okay, hey, this book has four chapters. And that was it. I'd never taught this book. I've read the book. Um, it's been taught in women's ministry. I think my wife has taught it to the ladies. But it's one I never taught. Oh my gosh, I don't know how I missed the blessing of this book. The four chapters of Ruth are four acts in a drama, it's been said. It's been said that chapter one could be called tears. Chapter two, toil. Chapter three, trust. And chapter four, triumph. Others have suggested, which I like better, chapter one, sorrow, chapter two, service, chapter three, surrender, and chapter four, satisfaction. There's so many applications, there's so many lessons, I'm only gonna hit a few. The Lord, allow the Lord to, to highlight to you the applications, because there are so many. So my outline will be chapter one, sorrow leading to repentance, producing a changed life in Naomi and Ruth. Chapter two, when we get there, service from a thankful heart. Chapter three, surrendering to the will of God. And chapter four, satisfaction in God's reward. The book begins with funerals and ends with a wedding. I mean, how, how, how beautiful could that be? You know, Naomi moves from bitterness to blessedness. Ruth moves, moves from loneliness to love. I mean, it's got everything you want. It's a, it's a great story. So introduction done, probably the longest introduction I've given in a long time. 
we're going to go through this. We'll get as far as we can get through chapter 1, and we'll see. So chapter 1, verse 1, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of the two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Now we're not certain, again, where the story of Ruth fits into the time and the history of Judges. There's no clear consensus on when it happened. The rabbis, I, I have a commentary by Arnold Fruchtenbaum. He's a, he was a Jewish rabbi, born again now as a Christian. He's a, he's a Messianic Jew, and he's written some, some good commentary. So he gives a Jewish perspective, and he quotes often from the Mishnah and, and from, from the Jewish writings and gives a different perspective. But there's no clear consensus. Even the rabbis had different opinions about when it you know, was done by this judge. You know, some say it was during Gideon or by, during Deborah's time or during, you know, there's all sorts of different views. Most conservative scholars place this towards the end of the judges when Eli was the high priest. Jo Jewish historian Josephus uh, from the first century says, says this, and I kind of, I, I lean this way, but again, we can't be dogmatic. He says, now after the death of Samson, Eli the high priest was governor of the Israelites. Under him, when the country was afflicted with a famine, Elimelech of Bethlehem, which is a city of the tribe of Judah, being not able to support his family under so sore a distress, took with him Naomi, his wife, and the children that were born to him, Chilion and Malon, and removed his habitation into the land of Moab. So it's possible that, that the famine that was caused by the ravages of one of these invading armies was the, 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 the catalyst for Elimelech to say, we need to go. There must have been peace in the land of Moab at this time. And it was possible, you know, when these raiders would come in, sometimes it would affect one part of Israel, but another part of Israel could be in total peace. Just like we have now, we have so many wars that are going on in our world, and yet we, right now, live in a time of relative peace here in, in California, in Sacramento, in the United States. But there was a famine, a famine that motivated them to move. God had promised Israel that there would always be plenty in the land if they were obedient. Famine in the land meant that Israel as a nation was not obedient to the Lord. And we see a promise from God in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 13. He says, and it shall be that if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain, your new wine and your oil. And I will send grass in your fields for your livestock, that you may eat and be filled. Take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them, lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you, and he shut up the heavens, so that there be no rain, and the land yield no produce, and you perish quickly from the good land which the Lord has given to you. So evidently, 
God was bringing about the consequences. They had, reached, they had turned away and God had allowed famine in the land. And there was this certain man of Bethlehem. The name of Bethlehem means house of bread and it was a rich agricultural area located on the edge of the desert of Judah, just about five miles from Jerusalem, surrounded by fertile fields, big and olive orchards, vineyards. You know, it was the house of bread. But now there was a famine, so there was no more bread. Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, and Chilean take a trip to Moab. They were Ephrathites. Elimelech's name means God is king. Naomi's name means pleasant. Malon and Chilion have an interesting name because Malon's name meant sickly and Chilion's name meant pining or failing uh, to led, led one commentator to say, to call them sick and tired. So Elimelech, Elimelech Naomi, and sick and tired left and they were Ephrathites of Benjamin, of Bethlehem, Judah, sorry. Ephraim, Ephathra was the ancient name for Bethlehem. You'll see that if you're taking notes. Genesis 35, 19, for Genesis 48, 7, uh, besides Ruth here. 1 Samuel 17, 12, and Micah 5, 2. Now we just, we just experienced, right? Remembering Jesus at his birth, Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from of old, from everlasting. Ruth shows us the fulfillment of that prophecy because it was from Ruth that David was going to come and from David from Jesus Christ was going to come. And so they went to dwell in Moab. Now the word dwell is interesting. It doesn't mean they moved there permanently. Dwell means that a sojourn, to live as, uh, as a resident alien among people who are not blood relatives. So their intention was to go there for a season and to come back. And they were going to go, the Hebrew name for Moab in there is the fields of Moab. And so evidently they went with the idea, we're gonna go, there's not a famine there. We're going to go and we're going to plant some, some crops there. We're going we're gonna to eat. We're going we're gonna to live and then we'll come back. But was this God's plan for Israel? Didn't he tell them to dwell in the land? To not go back? We just, in our personal devotion, Teresa and I were in the book right now of... Uh, Genesis, dealing with, we dealt this morning, we're going the chronological view, so it's taken us a little bit to get to Jacob and Isaac and Jacob, and, you know, and Isaac, when, when uh, the, the servant of the Lord went to get a wife for him back in Padam Aram, you know, the, the servant said, well, what if I can't find a woman there that wants to come back to be Isaac's husband? Should I just... Could I, should I come back and we, should we just grab somebody here from the land? And he goes, no, see that you don't do that. You need a wife from him, not from this land. God was very adamant. This was their land. This was their place. 
They were to dwell in it. They were to trust him. And they were to seek him. Whether the time was good, whether the time was bad, God was saying, come to me. I will be your provision. I will be your provider. And so something happens to where Elimelech and Naomi say, you know what? Maybe we need to take things into our own hands. Maybe God is not going to provide for us here. There's something here that indicates maybe a lack of trust, clearly a lack of faith that God could provide for them. To travel to Moab from Bethlehem is not a simple task. You had to hike through the desolate Jericho Pass. You had to travel through the Judean wilderness near the Dead Sea. And then you had to cross the Jordan River back over into the land, into the land of Moab. This was a definite departure from the promised land and a return toward the wilderness. God wanted them out of the wilderness into the promised land. These were clearly steps in the wrong direction. Again, Morgan says this, it's questionable whether their action was justified and the sorrows which followed would seem to be of the nature of chastisement. To begin with, their sons married Moabite women, which was not to be, and we'll look at that in just a moment. Then Elimelech dies and his sons also, so that sorrow upon sorrow came to the heart of Naomi. It's perfectly evident, however, that their action was rather that of foolish blundering than of willful rebellion. And I think that's important to remember because sometimes we make foolish blundering decisions and then we find afterwards when, when our vision is 2020 and we look back, why did I do that? That momentary lapse of judgment. Why didn't I seek the Lord on that? Or why didn't I listen to those that were saying, you know, you might want to pray about this before. Elimelech's intention of a short visit turned into 10 tragedy-filled years. And he never returned. Verse 3, then Elimelech's Naomi's husband died and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about 10 years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died. So the, women survived, the woman survived her two sons and her husband. So when Elimelech and the family came to Moab. They did not find land easier. They had uh, living there easier. They thought, hey, we're going to go. It's going to be easier there. But so often, when we step out of the will of God, we find that it's more difficult. Again, it's hard to say that this was a direct hand of God's judgment against them. It, it's sometimes difficult to discern why tragic things happen. We sometimes think we can move away from our problems, but so often we find that we just bring them with us. No matter where you go, you bring yourself with you. So often the same problems usually continue in a different place. Malon and Chilion grew up and they took wives among the Moabite, Orpah and Ruth. Orpah's name is interesting because it can mean neck. 
It can mean a girl with a full mane of hair, or it can mean rain clouds. Ruth is very clear, friendship, association, companion. But to take Moabite women as wives was not in obedience with God. God commanded the Israelites to not intermarry among the pagan nations. Jews were not to mix with Moabites. In fact, you see in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3, an Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. So God had very clear instructions. You're not to intermarry with, and you're not to, to, to receive a Moabite into, into the fellowship because they, were, they tried to curse you. Now, we see the grace of God in this with Ruth, don't we? But to the 10th generation, it, it hasn't been 10 generations yet since that time. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, I mentioned him earlier. He said this, the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 7, 3 did not actually forbid marriage with the Moabites as it forbade marriage with the Canaanites. But in Deuteronomy 23, 3, which we just read, the law did forbid the reception of Moabites into the congregation of the Lord until the 10th generation. So marrying Moabites was also a wrong thing to do because it would have limited the family from being able to worship. Had they come back, had they lived to come back into Israel, there would have been division in the home. There would have been division and, and a divided hearts in worship because they would have been ostracized. Now, God's grace often works things out, but based upon the principle of the law, it was the wrong thing to do. Their wrong decision would bring upon themselves the discipline of God. And God can and does bring beauty from ashes, praise him for that. But it's always better if we're not the one causing the fire because we've been playing with matches. If we're the one that's causing there to be a something to go up in flames and there were, were left with ashes, how much more difficult is that? Jude, in speaking to the church, says, but you, and this is Jude verses 20 and 21, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, looking for the mercy of of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. To keep yourself in the love of God is to remain in the sphere of God's love or the place of his blessing. It's to know, believe, and keep trusting in his love even in your struggles. Elimelech and Naomi did not do that. They stepped outside of the place where God said, I'm gonna bless you here. God desires us to keep ourselves in his love at all times, especially in our trials and our temptations. I love what Pastor Chuck used to say. He'd say, keep yourself under the spout where the blessings come out. Stay in that place, in that place of fellowship with the Lord. So time goes on, it's about 10 years, Naomi's son died. So now there's three widows, all without children. And to be childless, to be a childless widow was among the lowest, most disadvantaged class in the ancient world. There was no one to support you. 
and you had to live on the generosity of strangers. And no, Naomi had no family um, in, Mayo, in, in Moab, just her parents and no one else to help her. It was a desperate, or Naomi had no one in Moab at all. Ruth had her parents. So it's a desperate situation. So she arose with her daughter, verse six, daughters-in-law, and that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore, she sent out, she went out from that place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So Naomi hears, okay, God has visited the people again. The famine is over. We should go back. She wanted to be part of the good things that God was doing. And so she went out from the place where she was. You know, our walk should be that way too. Our walk should be such with the Lord, staying in that place that a blessing that others might want to look at us and go, you know, what, what you got going on? What is it about you that why can you have peace in all this stuff that's going on? Great opportunities. When uh, Teresa and I came to the Lord, that's basically the question we asked for the people that were witnessing to us silently and yet occasionally with words. And we just saw that they had something that we didn't have. The thing they had was a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Just encourage you. Stay in that place. Allow the Lord to bless you and be that witness. Stay in the peace of the Lord. So they head out. The impression is as they're leaving of a very poor household, Naomi's preparations for the journey were quickly made. I mean, it doesn't take long to pack up and move when you don't have much. More than likely that uh, when they left, Elimelech took you know, his personal possessions with him. And probably after his death, one by one, they, they went out you know, so that Naomi could live in the land. Verse eight, and Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the, with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. This is the wisest thing that Naomi could have said. You know, this is the wise thing to do, go back, you know. There's nothing for you in Israel because you have families here. You have people that can, can help you. You're going to get nothing there. And worst of all, you're an alien. You're a Moabite. And so don't expect anything there. It's interesting that they note in mother's house, just a little sidebar instead of father's house. Um, we know Ruth had at least a father alive. He's mentioned in chapter 2, verse 11, and possibly Orpah too. But, but in a polygamous society like Moab, the place for such as Ruth and Orpah would have been the women's quarters presided over there by their mother. And we'll see, you can see that in Song of Solomon's uh, chapter 3, verse 4, and chapter 8, verse 2, where the Shunammite references being in the house of her mother. So um, don't let that throw you there. So she prayed that they would remarry each in the house of her husband and that, that, that the Lord would deal kindly with them. 
that the Lord would, would, would show mercy and compassion upon them and that the Lord would give them rest in the house of their husband. So again, in antiquity, there were very few jobs for women, especially in rural areas, so that marriage was almost the only career open to a woman. It was the one thing that promised stability. Naomi saw no future for them. Being Moabite, they would be less likely to remarry in Israel. And what else could they do but share in her poverty? And she had nothing. So she kissed them, lifted up her voices, and wept. And you see this, this emotion, this, this relationship. This is not a, a stereotypical, what you'd say, a mother-in-law mother and her daughters-in-law. This was a loving close relationship. They clung to one another. They needed one another. And so there is real a relationship here. But they said to her in verse 10, surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out from me. And so the young women express a desire to return, but Naomi lays it out. You know, hey, look, you're young. You might as well get remarried. You have a better prospect that way. Stay here in the land. I'm too old for marriage. I can't have a baby now. And, and if I had a baby, you know, would you wait until the baby boy, if I had a boy, would grow up and be old enough for you to marry? You know, logically, it's not working out there. It's not looking too good. The reference here is to Leverite marriage whereby the brother of a man who died childless married the widow to raise up an heir for the deceased. You can see the custom regulated in Deuteronomy 25, 5. And in fact, this is also referenced in Matthew 22, 24, when the Pharisees and Sadducees and they, they, the teachers of the law, they try to trick Jesus, trap him in this, and about a man that had, you know, seven brothers, and they, they married the one, you know, so you, you can look at that. Naomi is saying that she has no other sons. She's grieved in her heart. The hand of the Lord is against me. Many commentators suggest that what Naomi was feeling was perhaps guilt. Perhaps that she might have been the one that had pushed Elimelech, look, we got to do something. Sick and tired need food. We need to go. The word is silent. We, that's only conjecture. But she recognized that she had been outside the will of God, that they had left that place of blessing that God had said, you're to dwell here and you're to trust me in the land. And they had strayed from that. Naomi's going back to the land of Israel, going back to her God, despite the feeling that the hand of the Lord was against her. And this is important. Naomi didn't grow bitter against God. She returned to him in repentance. Knowing the answer is drawing closer to him, not drawing farther away. You know, if, if you take anything from this up to this point, from this teaching, take that. 
The answer is always in drawing closer to the Lord. If you're feeling that hand of that, man, I've been out of the will of God. It's always the answer to go closer to him. You know, we've, we've defined before, and I'll just real quickly, the difference between condemnation from the enemy and conviction of the Holy Spirit is the direction that it points us to. The enemy's desire is that he would sever any kind of relationship with God. And so those times when you struggle, those times where you've fallen, those times where, where you've been out of step with the Lord for whatever reason, that word, that, that, that sound, that, that feeling, whatever that would come to you that would say, you can't go to God. That's from the enemy. That needs to be rebuked. Because God always says, come to me. I provided provision. It's the conviction of the Holy Spirit that says you need to go to God to get right with him. And he will restore you. He will forgive you. He will bring into your life that peace, that security, that sense of purpose that you have lacked because you've meandered in the world. Keep that. There's some lessons, other lessons to learn. Again, uh, Naomi didn't accuse God of doing something wrong against her. She acknowledged his total control over the circumstance. So it's actually an expression of trust. Naomi didn't become bitter or angry against God. Instead, she demonstrated that she trusted the sovereignty of God. She knew that despite her personal calamities, God is a good God who blesses. God is a good God. I love that song that we sing, Good, Good Father, because it expresses the truth. God is a good Father. He's a loving God. Yes, he brings correction. He brings us to that place where we need to receive, you know, correction and training in righteousness. But he's a good Father. What Naomi could not see is that the hand of the Lord would go out for her shortly. There's never a reason for us to despair, even if we believe the hand of the Lord has gone out against us. If we will return to him, his hand will go out for us again. Naomi had no idea, not in the slightest, of how greatly God was going to bless her in such a short time. And I am out of time. So we are going to stop there. I think that's a good place to think about that. To know that God wants you to be in a close relationship with him. He's not a father that wants to keep you far off. We've all had fathers. Some of us have known our fathers well. Some of us maybe didn't know even know our fathers. My father was not a demonstratively uh, open father. It wasn't until I was 26, 27 years old when we were living up, we were, um, no, I guess it was later than that. I guess I was close to, I was in my 30s. 12, maybe, 27, 28, we moved up in Washington, helped plant a church in 1997. And I remember talking to my, my parents, my dad on the phone about something. And at the end of the call, he says, I love you. That's the first time 
I ever remember hearing my dad say that he loved me. He showed me every day. He showed me in the things that he did that he would go. He showed me how he loved my mother. He showed me how he cared for me in providing a home. He never just spoke it because that wasn't his upbringing. When I met my wife and her family was so different, they were very demonstrative. I mean, I was told constantly, I love you. I care for you. So, so your, your experience may be one or the extreme of, of those. But that's not a reflection on God. God has demonstrated his love for us time and time again in the word. That while we were yet sinners, he sent his son, his beloved son, to die in our place. Something that I could not imagine. I have two sons. I can't imagine offering my son as a sacrifice for anyone. And yet he did that for us. Not that we would feel pity or feel bad, but that we would be restored because there's the great calf, chasm excuse me, between the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, and the sinfulness of man. Not only do we have the original sin problem because of Adam, our representative in the Garden of Eden, and whether you believe that or not, you have a sin problem by the way you live. We have a sin problem because no one is righteous. God's standard is absolutely perfection. And none of us measure up to that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's leveled the playing field. He's saying, I'm not playing any favorites. You're all sinners. But because of his love for us, it motivated him to do something. He couldn't just stand by and sit by and wait for us to enter into judgment. He provided a way out. But because of his love for us as well, he has not forced us into that. Rather, he's given us an opportunity to receive him, a choice. There are many today out there that says, oh, there's, there's no such thing as free will. The Bible will beg to differ with you. We have a free will to choose him, to follow him, to receive him into our life, to receive and recognize the sacrifice and to come back, to come back into the land. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you felt, man, I, I have been straying. I've been in the, wandering in the wilderness. God's saying, come back. Maybe you've been here all along and you've been, but you've been going through the motions in your heart. God's saying, come back. Come back. Make that choice. Maybe you've never received Jesus. Maybe you've been here by the, by the invitation of somebody. God's saying, come to me. All you who labor, all you who are heavy laden, bearing the burdens of sin, Feel the lightness of my load. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. It's light. My burden is easy. It's very light. So, Father, we thank you, Lord. 
Lord, your word tells us that all day long you reach out your hand to a wicked and rebellious people, Lord. And Lord, you're still reaching out, Lord. And I, I know many here, Lord, know you and love you, but I don't know hearts, Lord. I just know my own heart, Lord. And I know I need to cling to you, Lord. Next week, we'll see Naomi clinging to her, or Ruth clinging to her mother-in-law. Lord, we want to cling to you, Lord God, right now. And I just pray that if there's anyone here this morning, Lord, that has heard the voice of the Lord saying, you need to come back. Lord, that you would give them the boldness to do so. Lord, that you would still the voice of the devil, Lord. And that you would bring them back to you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. I trust that your spirit has been teaching us, speaking to our hearts, Lord. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. After the closing song here, we're going to bring Allison up uh, and we're going to pray for her. I invite you to stay for that and pray as well. But after that time, um, if, you, if the Lord's been speaking to your heart, and you want to talk to me or talk to Lou or Ted, we'll be available. So let's go ahead. And I will call. I will call. On the Lord. On the Lord. Who is worthy. Who is worthy. To be praised. To be praised. I will call. So shall I. So